from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is uh, Thursday, October the 1st, uh, 2020, and we're so glad to have you with us this morning here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We have a good show lined up for you today. Times Argus editor Steve Pappas will be joining me to discuss, to discuss a range of uh, news topics in the first uh, half hour of the program this morning. In the um, A little bit later, we're going to be speaking with uh, Chris Kaliba of the University of Vermont. He is director of the new Office of, Inv- of Engagement there. UVM is uh, trying to step up its efforts to reach out and involve the community, the state, Vermont businesses, etc., in its mission. And uh, we'll be talking with uh, Mr. Kaliba about that in the uh, second half hour. And then later on, a special treat for you today, our good friend uh, Rusty DeWeese will be joining us. He's going to be talking about the uh, efforts to... Um, Keep the performance art, performing arts going in Vermont uh, during this coronavirus pandemic. A lot of a lot of folks, of course, uh, know uh, Rusty through his uh, performances as the logger, a very funny storyteller, comedian sort of character that he portrays in uh, shows around the state. And uh, we're going to be talking to Rusty in the uh, second uh, second hour of the program today. Let's get it right into our conversation with uh, Steve Pappas, the, as I mentioned, the editor and the publisher these days with the Times Argus and Rutland Herald. And I believe he's on the phone with us this morning. Good morning, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Dave. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I, I wanted to get a, a real solid journalist on the uh, line this morning to talk about uh, something going on affecting uh, Vermont journalism in the last week or so, which is um, this incident in which uh, uh, Black Lives Matter protesters in Burlington who've been um, occupying Battery Park in the city for uh, some time now, a matter of weeks, I believe, um, uh, grabbed a bunch of copies of the newspaper Seven Days, the Burlington-based weekly, last week after a publication of a story in which a, a reporter embedded herself with the uh, protesters for uh, some number of days and uh, did quite an extensive reporting job. I guess they didn't like it very much, and their response to it was actually to uh, denounce the paper and uh, grab some bunch of copies off of uh, the little honor boxes where the papers distributed on Burlington street corners and storefronts and so on, and uh, take copies of it, shred them up, burn them, etc. And uh, a lot of folks uh, in the Vermont journalism field have uh, sort of rallied in seven days' defense and and said this is not the uh, not the way to respond to uh, such a situation where you don't like a paper's coverage. Uh, uh, wanted to get your thoughts about all this. What do you make of this incident? Oh well, so absolutely. I mean, it's it, <clears throat> first of all, it's very interesting to me that that we have had this uh, this level of. Um, kind of protest taking place and unfolding in Burlington, and they, you know, as you indicated, it, it was, go- it has been going on for quite some time, and they did allow um, reporter to to be embedded with them for um, uh, for quite a block of time before the story was written. So, um, if you read the article, um, and it, it, it came out a week ago. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it came out a week ago. Um, It's a very comprehensive look um, at the issue. So it's not just the the one side of the folks who are are protesting and demonstrating. It is um, a very comprehensive look through the Vermont 
and specifically the Burlington lens of this this issue of race in the police. Um, and, and there have been a number of issues um, stemming from Burlington over the years that that allow for concerns. There have been incidents. There have been um, there's been a, a host of things that have raised this issue and made it a very relevant um, topic for seven days to tackle. And um, so to have this story come out and then basically, as you pointed out, it, it, the merits of the story I don't believe are being questioned at all. Um, it is simply that um, uh, a group of people in the community who um, are closely tied to the, the protest side of this this issue um, are have been burning, throwing out and burning the paper. It hasn't just been burning; it's also been um, <clears throat> just trying to, you know, make sh- go around the city and and take the the papers away. Um, mm-hmm. And because seven days is dropped, it's a dropped paper, um, and not mailed in the people's homes, um, you know, you can actually have an effect uh, in doing that and making sure that, you know, you go around and collect them and um, you would you would have an impact as to who would see it. Um, but seven days has a very strong presence both online and in print, and um, word got around quickly. And also, as you indicated the Vermont press, myself included, um, really condemned, uh, came right out and condemned the burning of seven days by these protesters. Um, you know, we are often in the media accused of um, bias because people feel like we don't we don't put enough of their side of a story in the paper or the letters pages are too overrun with certain points of view and that all of a sudden, that is a representation of bias and and or censorship. Well, so is this. This is very much an act of censorship by um, a, a group of people in the community. And um, you know, the the paper's coverage was was fair and was accurate. And for um, you know, for individuals in the community to feel like that message. Um, is not the message to be put out there is is concerning for all of us, not just as readers um, and specifically as journalists, but the fact that that kind of level of censorship is actually um, someone would feel that that was an appropriate response. It is not an appropriate response. Um, and um, I think that uh, more or less everybody who's been in the journalism field and and, and rallying, uh, as you say, in support of Seven Days um, over this article titled Battery Power. Um, He's, you know, we're doing the right thing by standing up. And the Vermont Press Association um, has stood up and came out with a a, a statement of condemnation. and uh, you know, it's this is this is what we're trying to avoid because people say that you know we're misconstruing the news all the time and we're creating fake news. But um, just because you don't like the message, folks, doesn't mean that you uh, you need to shoot the messenger. And in this case, you shouldn't be burning the mes- the messenger's message either. And uh, you know, it is it is very much an act of censorship, and it it it, it should not be allowed. Chelsea Edgar of Seven Days uh, wrote <clears throat> nearly uh, 
6,000 words about this uh, in, in, yeah. in her story that appeared, as, uh, as you mentioned, Steve, about eight days ago. The paper comes out on Wednesdays. Of course, they uh, came out with a new edition yesterday, but uh, the, a week earlier was this, was this uh, major story by, uh, by uh, Chelsea Edgar, a terrific young reporter. I first really, she first came to my notice in a big way last year when she wrote a, a very in-depth piece where she also embedded herself, but this time, or that time, I should say, in the uh, Vermont dairy industry. She went and worked on a dairy farm, I think, for a week. And, uh, yeah, really got, yeah, that was an got, incredible piece of journalism, absolutely. Yeah, it really was, and she's a very talented young writer, and um, and I think she was trying to take the same approach here, where it was a very sort of experiential-based <clears throat> reporting, and... Um, uh, and, and, and somewhat impressionistic. You know, you're, you're really trying to go deep into descriptions of things and so on and so forth. Um, in, and she apparently, in the course of the reporting, in the actual story itself talks about how she didn't get much cooperation from the leaders or really any cooperation from the leaders of the protests there at the, uh, at Battery Park. Uh, she did talk to, uh, one man who, uh, had been involved in the protests and apparently, I guess, has, has been, uh, has kind of left the leadership. I don't know exactly under what uh, circumstances or, or whatever, but, um, was talking about, uh, he, he, he called the movement a cult and an exploitation of white people. Um, and, uh, Edgar went on to describe, uh, protesters as, quote, white girls waiting to be told what to do, unquote, and she called them females of the TikTok demographic dressed in black, sporting some combination of blundstones, ironic tube socks, and leg hair. Um, not particularly flattering, I guess, and, and I guess um, that's some of what the, I think, I think the, the people objecting to this story found, found its tone to be uh, somewhat dismissive at times. And, um, uh, and I, I think um, really the, the approach was more one of, of trying to uh, just be, be very descriptive of, of what the, and, and as I said, impressionistic a little bit about what the, uh, what the writers saw. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but, but and, I guess my, uh, this, counter, my counter argument to that, Dave, is that you don't want to gloss it over. If you're going to show that something is disorganized and that it's, you know, it, it feels like it's a group of, <clears throat> of people acting instead of, you know, actually protesting or demonstrating. You absolutely want to show that. I mean, this is a very important issue, and if it's if it's if it's not being, um, you know, coordinated in a in in a way that um, is tying up Battery Park, and you know, I mean, I think that's one of the concerns that Burlington had was, you know, why why is this happening? It's just just is this just a uh, protest that is designed to be a media event and. Um, you know, there were a fair number of people who felt like that's what was happening, uh, you know, under the guise of the movement of Black Lives Matter. And, um, you know, I yeah, think that I, needed to, it needed to be portrayed. It may have been a little overwritten, but... Spoken like a true editor. But, you know, once again, I guess I, guess I would say that, um, you know... The expectation here of the the outrage of it, though, feels less about that they were mad about how the story was written, and it was less. It was more about that their message didn't get conveyed. Uh, that they wanted more of their side of it out there, and that 
you know, sorry, folks, newspapers are not mouthpieces for for one side of an issue or another. I mean, they, they are they are available to provide facts, and and oftentimes, um, you know, they are available for commentary and letters to the editor for that dialogue to take place. Um, unfortunately for Burlington, and you know, I hate to do this, but I'm going to do it. The Burlington Free Press just is not the paper of, uh, that can do that anymore in Burlington. In its day, yeah. it probably could have um, really had control over its coverage of the story, but it is such a shadow of its former self that a newspaper like Seven Days, which is an independent newspaper, it is not, you know, it does not necessarily, um, you know, it's an alternative publication. It's not supposed to always be on the up and up, it can take that kind of liberty of um, going embedding and taking the writing to a bit of an extreme. Whereas, you know, if my, one of my reporters did that, I'd probably be pretty irritated. And, um, I, you know, I would I would take some of that out. And certainly if, if Dave Graham were covering it for the AP, it would not read that way at all. Uh, uh, that's true. I will confess yeah. to that. Um, hey, uh, free, let's bring, let's bring in a listener who's on the line. Uh, we have uh, Dan from Newfane. Good morning, Dan. Morning. Hey, you know, I agree with you about burning the papers. I agree about the press is not supposed to be a mouthpiece for protesters. All of that is absolutely true. But and I'm and I appreciate the fact that Dave read that opening paragraph because that is a time-honored method of discrediting protesters. You know, that's the kind of thing um, that the Washington Times used to do all the time, or, you know, Fox News. They they bring you on, and before the thing even starts, they try to cast you as some kind of a weirdo. Leg hair, ironic tube socks. It's, it's condescending, and it creates a general impression right from the get-go, which is don't really take these people seriously. You know, when you read all the way down through the article, I think it gets better. It gives you more information. It has some nuances and subtleties. But that opening, I don't think we should really ignore the power of that opening and what it does to set the tone is actually inimical to true discussion and true consideration of everything because it sets the protesters at a disadvantage simply because of their appearance. And I don't think that's good journalism. You know, I'm not saying the piece was bad journalism, but I think that opening was a big mistake, and I think we need to give it more credence as a powerful uh, in, in, a powerful effect on the whole piece by being the opening. That's all. All right. Well, Dan, thank you for the call. I, I, I actually think... Uh I think you have, you make a, a good point here, and and I found I thought that the tone of, of that uh, that one part of the article uh, I call it dismissive. I think condescending is another another good word, and I I think the uh, the challenge here, and and you know I I remember early in my journalism career having an editor tell me it's much better to tell, or rather not, much better to show instead of telling. Don't just, don't write in your story that it was a beautiful day, but talk about the blue sky and the you know the uh, white puffy clouds and the bright sunshine. If you provide enough detail, uh, you can do so in a very neutral manner and actually uh, convey the the kind of color of an event or a scene in a uh, in a in a way which is both neutral and and also uh, fairly deep and reflective of of what was going on here. I think the there was a shortcut taken. 
to uh, a, you know a bit of stereotyping almost uh, of just about the group that that was here. Um, and I understand why that would annoy the heck out of the protesters who, who show up. Uh, I think by and large believing that they are not being exploited, they are not just acting. They are really trying to address very serious issues in our society and and uh, and get people to listen. And if, if the first reaction, literally the opening reaction of of, uh, of this journalist who is perceived as a person of power, you know, because she's writing for this major local publication and so on. If that if that sort of initial take on it is you know uh, these people are are uh, basically almost almost being described as clowns or something, I think I I, I agree that I, I think that's a real problem and one which uh, which I'm not surprised has has drawn an angry reaction. Now, do I agree with burning of newspapers? No, I don't. I think that the more dialogue is what's needed. And actually, I would go back earlier in the process and say that, that one of the uh, real mistakes of the protesters early on was not to uh, cooperate more with the reporter. You know, the reporter shows up trying to figure out what's the story, and I, you know, and it's the job of the reporter to do to show up with a neutral attitude um, and and be ready to listen and take lots of notes and so on. And this uh, this process broke down immediately because, you know, she was left. Really, the only person who would be interviewed by her was this person who apparently previously had had big disagreements and left the uh, the kind of leadership circle of the uh, of the protests. So that that's going to color your reporting right there. In well, an unfortunate, also, yeah, yeah. It also defies the process of of journalism too, in the sense that. Um, there's there's an assumption sometimes that if the side doesn't speak, conversely, I, to your point, if you don't say anything, the story can't be written, and that's not true. Just you know, because one side doesn't want to engage um, and explain their position, doesn't mean that yeah. the, there's not going to be a story. And the, that was a that was the, a tactical misstep from the organizers of the protest, you know, to um, you know. By limiting their message, um, I think they thought that they were they were going to have an upper hand in this thing, and and that you know that's not that's not how it works, folks. I mean, you nope. just because you don't want to say something doesn't mean that there's not going to be a story, especially um, you know when a major uh, you know space in the heart of a community has been taken over. Um, yeah, that's, that's a news. major deal, and it needs to be addressed openly and absolutely um, as pub- publicly as possible. I believe we have a. Is it Amy from Cabot? Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Oh, great. Um, yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've been studying media literacy for a long time, you know, so I, I have kind of an eye tuned to you know how the media you know is portraying things to be able to objectify a little more of how these stories are written. Um, and, and I've been reading Seven Days for decades. I get it every week. I mean, it's full of, you know, really good information. It keeps you kind of up to date. But I have noticed this trend um, where it seems like not just Seven Days, but all alternative and mainstream media, not so much TV, um, but the others have seemed to be not so much about information, but kind of telling us how to feel and what to think, you know, um, and with some of this um, kind of sensational you know, facts like tube socks, you know, and things like that, that really, you know, is that really relevant? Um, it's it's interesting, you know, um, but what I've noticed is they do that in a lot of articles, um, 
but I think psychologically, if we think about which articles we notice it in, you know, what are our trigger issues? Because, um, you know, I've noticed some articles I remember, they, they sent somebody down to a women's retreat center a couple of years ago. Um, and this is a, an old women's retreat center. And, and just really, I thought the article just really slammed them and took advantage of these people. Um, they did it once with a guy who walks in the forest and teaches people the ground, you know. And when I read that article, I thought, this poor guy, you know. <laughs> and if I was ever called by seven days and they wanted to interview me, if I was a business owner or whatever, I'd be very hesitant. Um, but most people don't notice it when it's an issue that they want to feel that way about, you know what I mean? Or they're not personally involved. Or where they enjoy kind of the ridiculing of this person or the, they don't see the slant because it agrees with their already preconceived feeling. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I, I think you're. I think you're right, and I think this is something that that uh, I mean, the, the media ought to take this to heart because I do think that that many many people who are out there in protests or doing re- really any number of endeavors um, where they believe they are um, they are very very serious about what they're about, and I, and I think that um, one of the things you have to do is is sort of convey. You know, if you want to get the story right, you have to convey how serious these people are about about you know their their issues and the way they think about them and so on. And uh, I don't think I I, I mean I, I think you're right compared to uh, trying to address you know 400 years of slavery and racism, et cetera. I just don't think tube socks really quite make the cut. Well, and that's not so much my issue. I'm kind of trying to broaden it beyond this specific example. This is just one yeah. example, and it's but this is an example. Groups. Well, and it's triggering a group that probably doesn't usually see the slant on the other side. You know, they probably read, yep. you know, I mean, I bet if you ask about one of these other articles I could name, you know, about all kinds of issues. You know, it, there, there is always a slant. And it's not seven days isn't at fault. All media has a slant. Everybody, yep. right? Um, I don't mean to single out seven days either. I, I, I think right, this, is, either, this is a... Me either. So I just I yep. thought it was an interesting time to kind of look at that bigger issue. This is triggering these folks in this way. Um, but all of us armchair readers, you know, or listeners, you know, we get triggered, too. We're being triggered. Um, and yep. probably, you know, maybe on purpose. I don't know. Probably by accident. Maybe to sell that. I don't know. You know, but there is always a slant. So I thought this was a good example. So thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. That's uh, another very uh, smart comment. Uh, I love our listeners checking in with us and uh, and doing that kind of stuff. Hey, uh, let me, uh, let me, let, I, th- I believe we have one other caller on the, uh, on the line. And unfortunately I, Oh, Jerry from Montpelier. There we go. Good morning, Jerry. Hey, I'm here. Yep. Oh, I thought I was waiting at the line at Walmart or something. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That's um, no, you're anyhow, fine. Don't worry. I got one quick thing to say. Yeah. And I want really people to think about this. After I get off the phone. Okay. I'm 65 years old. And when I grew up as a kid, I used to watch black and white TV of people burning in Nazi Germany piles and piles of books, literature, the written word. Everything that we live on is the written word from the Bible to the Constitution. So how yep. can you take a paper and go out and burn it whether you believe in what it says or not? I, 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 uh, I, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll let you go. All right. Thanks for the call, Jerry. I, I, pre- I appreciate Bye. what you're saying there. 
Um, we, uh, yeah, I think, I think that, 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 that is a, that's a good point that, uh, uh, regardless of what it is, burning the thing, I mean, think of the carbon in, in footprint for one thing. So this idea of burning things has got to go out of fashion, folks. Uh, hey, um, Steve Pappas has been my guest on the first half hour of the Dave Graham show. Really appreciate you joining me, Steve. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Anytime. And appreciate all the callers as well. Excellent conversation, folks. Uh, let's go to a bottom of the hour uh, break for some CBS News. And uh, when we are uh, back, we're going to be talking about uh, University of Vermont's efforts to step up engagement with its uh, surrounding community and state. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rock and Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. We are back, and um, we're uh, talking with, we're going to be talking with, just momentarily, after I introduce him, that is, uh, Christopher Kaliba. He's a professor of uh, Community Development and Applied Economics at the University of Vermont. Uh, he is um, uh, a uh, Presidential Fellow for Engagement and Associate Director of Vermont EPSCOR. We'll find out about what all of that is in just a moment. And uh, I believe we are going to be talking about the efforts uh, at the University of Vermont to uh, step up engagement with its surrounding community and uh, and the uh, the, the state of Vermont at large, its businesses and its uh, folks in general, and uh, the University of Vermont, of course, has already quite a, had quite a history of this kind of stuff. They want to apparently expand it and, and enhance it, and uh, Chris Kaliba knows all about it. Let's find out uh, what's going on there. And uh, Mr. Kaliba, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Uh, thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be, be on. So uh, just a couple months ago, I guess, the university created uh, a new Office of Engagement. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah. And uh, tell us uh, about, the, about its mission, and, uh, and, uh, and well, we'll start there. What, what, what is it set up to do? Sure. So as you noted, uh, UVM has had a long history of uh, serving the needs of Vermonters. You know, we are the University of Vermont. Uh, we have a, a pretty vibrant extension services that have been uh, providing support to our business and, and agricultural communities for, for a very, very long time. Uh, what the Office of Engagement is going to do is to organize and coordinate our services uh, for the rest of the university uh, in a little bit more of a coordinated way and to serve as uh, the front door to the university uh, for those, particularly for those who have have yet to engage with us on any number of different uh, avenues that I can talk about a little bit a little bit later, I'm sure. Um, but the idea here is that we have uh, a main website, a main phone number, a main uh, email address, that if you are looking for connections to the university uh, beyond our, obviously, uh, our coursework and, and our degrees, uh, we can be the one-stop shopping for you and get you connected to the right entities at the institution. Um, this this office is being established by uh, President Suresh Garamella 
who came to us. Uh, he's been our president now for over a year. Uh, he came to us having directed and created such an office uh, at Purdue University. Uh, one of the things that he constantly, consistently brings up when he's talking to, to anyone about the university is our land-grant mission, and that's really what drew him to us. And so he's been a strong advocate for the land-grant mission and, and has recognized the great things we're doing in this space, but has also recognized uh, an opportunity for us to expand uh, our footprint across the state, um, our value to, to Vermonters, to our business community, to our nonprofit community, to to government uh, agencies and what have you, um, and to incubate partnerships. And we can see that there's there's existing opportunities already in place, but also new opportunities for uh, collaboration uh, with Vermonters to address pressing needs, uh, provide opportunity, uh, fill gaps in the workforce as necessary, and what have you. And so... Uh, he, we launched this uh, this office uh, over the summer. Uh, he asked me to uh, to establish it. Establishment. Um, we've gotten some initial funding from the state of Vermont, uh, and we're very thankful for that. Uh, we have a pretty active uh, external advisory council that is counseling us on uh, emerging opportunities and, and priority setting, and uh, we've been very very excited about. Uh, the level of enthusiasm and interest that folks have shown uh, for this new office. And uh, it's been a pretty exciting time, actually, um, despite all of the uh, the challenges we're having in our society. So it's, uh, it's a shining light, and it's, a, I think, an emerging opportunity. Uh, let's let's roll it back a little bit. I want to talk to you about about the the land grant uh, principles and sort of philosophy. Uh, yeah. Land grant universities, if, if my understanding is that they are uh, they 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 were sort of started up. But the idea was created in the uh, in the nineteenth uh, second half of the nineteenth century. Um, uh, U.S. Senator Justin Morrill, who actually came from Vermont, was a was a very important uh, player in the uh, in the in the development of this concept. And uh, um, it's it's always been fascinating to me that UVM is is called a land grant uh, university and and is a land grant university in in uh, many of its fundamental sort of functions and existence. But the the university actually existed about a century before. <laughs> Yeah. Before uh, Justin Morrill came on the scene, talk, talk to us a little bit about that history. What, what is the what is the land grant university idea, and and uh, and how did it kind of land here in Vermont uh, in the case sure. of an already existing school? Uh, great, great question, Dave. Uh, and you're you're totally spot on with uh, with Senator Morrill. Uh, my, my office or one of my offices, my my, my professorly office, uh, sits in Morrill Hall. Uh, I pass by his bust every day. Um, and so Vermont has uh, a strong uh, thread, historical thread, to the land-grant institutional mission. Um, and the land-grant, uh, the first moral act was passed in 1882, 1862, uh, and it was designed to provide better access of citizens across the country to uh, higher education opportunities and also to uh, diffuse the knowledge and information and uh, outreach services that were being generated out of the higher education institutions at the time to serve the needs of the nation. 
um, and the Morrill Act was been updated in, in, in 1890. Um, you know, this this effort was initiated in part to uh, open the doors of higher education to more people. Uh, the knowledge that was being generated through universities and colleges make them make that more accessible and useful uh, to serve the needs of the nation. Uh, and so, the land grant institutions that first round. Uh, of institutions of which UVM was one of them, uh, were already established, as you said. Uh, and uh, this was designed, though, to ensure that they were not uh, cities on a hill or isolated from the needs of their surrounding communities. And so it, it nudged them out of their nest, so to speak, and to look outward. Now, of course, the University of Vermont has a much longer history. Uh, we were established in 1792. Uh, there are a variety of, of noted uh, sort of bellwethers for the university. We were one of the first to admit an African-American um, into the institution. Um, we had some very visionary leaders. Uh, James Marsh is one of them uh, during this era, uh, who had a very forward-thinking uh, approach to uh, education that was very much tied to engagement, uh, very much tied to a sense that the, the, the role of education uh, should be in service to promoting good citizenship and uh, problem resolution and the democratic ideal of providing information, knowledge, uh, and skills into the hands of ordinary citizens for the betterment of the country and for the state. And so that history, it was, it was a, not an, a hard leap for the university to embrace that mission. Um, you know, we, we, had, we also graduated one of our most distinguished uh, alums, John Dewey, shortly thereafter, who was one of our premier American philosophers of the 20th century, and Dewey mm -hmm. built on this idea. So, so there's a, that, that history is long and rich. Uh, the land grant is the network of universities that communicate around best practices, and uh, and so it's, it's an important uh, mission that, uh, you know, needs some consistent uh, refreshing, and I think that's what this, this effort is all about. And, and, and uh, let's, uh, let's uh, move the, uh, the time focus here right up to the present sure. and, <laughs> and, and, and ask you, um, with all of the previous engagement uh, done by the university, uh, what... Uh, it sounds like we're sort of um, uh, adding a new uh, layer of frosting to an already quite tasty cake, <laughs> for lack of a well, better metaphor right now. Yeah. And uh, you, know, uh, you know, yeah. Go ahead. No, I mean, I, I'm glad you, you know, you, you feel that way uh, because on one level you're certainly true, and we're not trying to add an, a bureaucratic layer. That's the last thing I want to be doing is creating more barriers and hurdles for people to, to do this work. Uh, you know, despite your, your observations, we, we have gotten some, some feedback over the years about our point of, points of access um, uh, and sometimes our, our pursuits for, for, for scholarly excellence. And, uh, you know, we certainly uh, bring in external students from outside the state um, to, come, to, to come study and learn with us. That has created some perceptions that we tend to be a little bit more focused inwardly. Um, that we tend to be a little more focused on Chinna County. Um, and, uh, we've gotten 
the encouragement to, uh, to to provide more of a front-facing front-facing effort. So, yes, uh, we're here to support what we're already doing. Extension uh, being one of them. Uh, we're excited. We're in the process of hiring a new extension director. Um, it should be a, a nice opportunity for us to to take a, a deep look at what we're doing in ways that we can even amplify and build upon it. Um, you know, we have had seen our extension services uh, depleted a little bit with some mm-hmm. entrenchment and funding. And so this is a way to elevate that work in some new avenues and then find new avenues where we haven't been as active and consistent, yeah, consistently active. Things like workforce development. Um, we obviously train graduate students and, and bachelor's uh, degree students, but we need to be more a part of the conversations with CCD and the state college system and our tech centers around the, the full suite of needs that our employers need uh, to fill their gaps. Uh, regional economic development is another area that we have not been as actively involved in. I've been excited to be having many conversations with our regional development cent- uh, corporations and centers across the state, and they're very excited to be working with us um, in a more full-throated way. So there's, there's some areas where we've been very strong in, and then there's been some areas where we've, we've been, uh, been, I wouldn't say absent, but not consistently present in, and, and we're going to fill those gaps and, and be supportive and amplify and partner with, with others to, to achieve those goals. One thing, that, one thing that strikes me about this effort is, I, I mean, I wondered whether there's a, there is some uh, notion here that what we've needed uh, in the and and maybe the, this is the need we're trying to meet with the creation of this office of engagement mm-hmm. is sort of a centralized uh, point of contact for the larger Vermont community with the University of Vermont. I mean, I, I can imagine that if you're out there and just living your life in the state and you have an idea for. Uh, you know, a new method of, I don't know, cleaning up uh, algae in Lake Champlain. That's one thing where you might want to contact folks at the university. You might have another idea for s- historical research. That's a whole other department at the university you might want to contact, uh, et-, et-, et cetera. And, and it sounds like maybe if there's one phone number to call <laughs> to sort of act as a, almost a traffic cop here, um, that, 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 that might be a way to, uh, just enhance that, that first, that opening communication. That's, that's exactly it, Dave. That's exactly it. And those connections do get made, but it, but it often is who you know, right? And we're good at that here in Vermont. You know, we have very, mm-hmm. very strong relationships. But if you don't have those relationships already established, um, or it's also working internally that when there's a point of contact that's not our office, but then they're running into roadblocks or don't know how to operationalize an idea, where do they go? So it's also serving as a broker of information and connectivity among among the UVMers as well. But you're right, you're right. This is this is a place where, you know, we'll pick up the phone, we'll answer it, we'll get you connected, we'll follow up to make sure that that connection was followed through. Um, you know, if, if need be, we'll be in the room, uh, so to speak, to help uh, make those arrangements, uh, whatever kind of collaboration it needs to be, uh, you know, making sure that the mechanisms of the university are, are, are rolling in all the right directions support the effort. So, so you're absolutely right. And that's where we oftentimes aren't fully understanding of where we are connected to. And so that's also part of this work is to better track and map our partnerships internally. Um, and so that when we get a contact from, from a, a company, we can enter that company's name into our database. And then we know, oh, I, we know that we've got a, 
we place several interns there, or we've got a research project going on, um, and that we can build on those relationships uh, in a more substantive way. And so that's, but, but you're totally right. And that, that has not previously existed at the institution, and that's what the main reason why we're being established. Uh, we have a caller on the line. I believe it's Mary from Bristol. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, perfect. So love what you're doing at UVM. I think that's definitely needed. Um, but I'm curious because the other, about a few years ago, I checked into having, taking a class, I think in the music department, and the amount that I had to pay was ridiculous. And I'm wondering if it goes the other way, that you're trying to open up and make your classes more accessible. I mean, you have an amazing set of professors on staff, so to share that knowledge rather than being the university on the hill, I'm wondering if that's an intention as well. Great question, Mary. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Chris Kaliba, the director of the university's new Office of Engagement, who's my guest on this segment of the Dave Graham Show. Should have mentioned that right off the right off the break, but uh, Chris is on the phone with us as well. And so, Chris, what can, what can you tell us? That's a really uh, fascinating suggestion from Mary from Bristol. Sure, hey, Mary. Thank you so much for for the the call and, and the question. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, you know, on one level, there is a, a business end to the work that needs to be done, you know, in charging tuition uh, for credit and whatnot. And those rates are set um, for Vermonters at a lower rate than they are for out-of-state. Um, they are, you know, they do cost a bit. Um, and uh, we recognize that and we know that. And uh, I think Aramella, one of his first uh, efforts here was to freeze our tuition uh Rates and so affordability is is high on on our priority list for sure um, for traditional students as well as as, as non traditional adult learners. Um, what's also I think exciting about this office is that we can start asking these kind of questions uh, to the rest of the system, to the rest of our UVM units, and and potentially explore explore ways about um, making and, and improving the access. Uh, to folks uh, at a more affordable rate. Um, so I, I, I take note of your question. Um, that we do have a very active continuing and distance education unit that offers a variety of non-credit-bearing experiences that, that are much more affordable. Uh, you know, for example, I know they've got uh, coursework in, in digital literacy and digital marketing, very critical uh, needs at this point uh, in, in the COVID pandemic era. Um, and a variety of other lifelong learning experiences. Um, our, our extension services also also offer uh, coursework uh, open to adult learners uh, at a pretty affordable rate as well. The challenges are, are for some more of the specialized areas, like in the, in the music department, for example. But I'd be very open to exploring ways that we can uh, improve the, the access and affordability for Vermonters. Um, into new avenues. Um, one thing also to recognize, Dave, while, while Mary's question exploded there, not only adult mm-hmm. learners, but also high school uh, learners, uh, it's been very exciting to see the dual enrollment use, uh, uses um, and having uh, high school students taking college courses, uh, particularly during this time, but also prior. And so that's another area, and so we've got a nice arrangement with the state where uh, students can take up to two college classes. Uh, for free, and uh, the state covers that, and you work through your local high schools 
to uh, to access a portal and get approval. And that's all all, the, all, all Vermont colleges have access uh, have dual enrollment options. So that's another another avenue to get access to the university resources. But it's something I'm definitely going to keep on my radar, and, and I appreciate the question. Actually, yeah, that's... can I follow that up, Dave? Is that okay? Like, sure, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Mary. Um, so, yes, dual enrollment. So thankful for that. I know many students that are doing that. So, yes. Um, just to give a little more context to specifically, so I've asked a few times, and I'm asking through the professor, who is entirely welcomed for me to join the class, and it's an, and it's an audit. I don't even want any labor, extra labor from the professor. Yeah. So just to, like, put another, like, audit. you know, come on, let's, Let's get your knowledge open to the public. That's what you're here yeah. for. So anyway, totally hear you. So thanks for anything you can do. Okay. Thanks for the call, Mary. Yeah, yeah thank Mary, you. Just to sort of let's, just to sort of demonstrate our responsiveness. Let me um, I, please please follow up. Our our, uh, our office's uh, website is is Engage UVM, capital E Engage UVM at uvm.edu, um, and we are you know. There are people on the lines right now answering those. So, uh, to Mary and others, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, you know, I know that there is a premium and a cost to auditing that you're probably talking about. I can take a look at the, the yeah. price point on that and, and better understand and, and perhaps see what we can do. So, thank you. Perfect. Thanks Enga- so much. Engage UVM at uvm.edu. That's the uh, website, correct? That's right. And, Dave, the, uh, the phone number is 802. 802- Six five six eight nine zero zero. All right. And, well, and the, yeah. I'm glad you uh, extended that contact information for folks so they can reach out. Uh, as it happens, we are about out of time for this segment on the Dave Graham Show here in WDEV, FM, and AM. But uh, Christopher Kaliba, the director of UVM's new Office of Engagement, uh, I think we've had an excellent engagement this half hour. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Dave. All righty. Let's go to uh, top of the hour break for some CBS News here on the Dave Graham Show. And uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes, folks. Stay with us. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back, and we're going to open the phone lines for the next 10 or 15 minutes here on the Dave Graham Show, WDEV FM and AM. I'm curious to hear what uh, more of our listeners have to say about that, uh, especially that first half-hour segment we were talking with Steve Paps of the Times Argus uh, this morning about uh, an incident involving the Seven Days newspaper in Burlington. I will say, by the way, I did reach out to some folks at Seven Days. Uh, they did not... Uh, they did. Uh, they declined basically to come on Dave Graham show here on WDEV to talk about this incident in which uh, they wrote a long and quite comprehensive story about the uh, Black Lives Matter protests in Burlington that have occupied uh, Battery Park in the city uh, recently. And uh, it was a week ago yesterday the story was published. Uh, the reaction from the protesters was not particularly positive. Many of them. Uh, 
or some of them were involved in uh, basically swiping uh, copies of Seven Days from the free honor boxes around the city, and then they actually uh, went to a ritual burning of the newspapers. I sort of quipped in the first half hour that uh, you got to watch out for the carbon footprint when you're burning stuff. But, uh, and you know, maybe there's a consideration there. Maybe people ought to change the style of how they do protests and so on. But uh, no more burning the American flag, people. Think about the pollution. You know, that's bad, bad news. Uh, anyway, um, so I, and we got a few calls, but I'm, I suspect more listeners out there might have some thoughts. Was that, was that justified? But if you're, tip, you know, you're ticked off at the way a local newspaper has, uh, has handled your, your situation in a story that they published, uh, do you have a right to go and swipe a bunch of copies of the paper and burn them? Uh, is that something that um, is is uh, is okay, or uh, you know, is it sort of a reasonable in the realm of protest, or or is it something that is uh, a real violation of of our First Amendment rights? It's interesting to me, of course, that uh, you know, and I'll my bias right up front. If you don't know, I'm a long, former longtime reporter for the Associated Press, uh, long background in journalism, so you can probably guess where my sympathies lie here. As a very bottom line thing, uh, but I. I I, it strikes me as interesting that basically what we have here are two different uh, approaches to the First Amendment. Uh, one, uh, one reflected in protest. Uh, and the First Amendment talks about the right of people peaceably to assemble and petition their government for a redress of grievances. And that's a lot of what's going on in these protests. People seeking a redress of grievances. The, um, of course, another uh, aspect of the First Amendment is the freedom of the press. And, uh, there's been a long, a long time, uh, respect and tradition in this country for allowing people to publish pretty much what they will. Uh, you know, within certain limits, all these freedoms in, in the Bill of Rights have certain uh, limitations. Uh, you're, your freedoms basically go to right to the edge of where you're directly harming someone else in many, many cases. The um, uh, two different uh, approaches to the First Amendment certainly clashing there in, in Burlington. Uh, fascinating uh, incident uh, and, and, and a good introduction to a discussion about the different aspects of the First Amendment, I do, I do believe. So um, we are uh, also obviously talking a lot about, I mean, everybody is, about this week's uh, d- debate in in Cleveland between President Donald Trump and uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, the two candidates in uh, next month's election for this next term of the presidency in the United States of America. A lot of people were really uh, pretty disturbed by, particularly by President Trump's performance. Uh, uh, I don't know if anybody is giving Joe Biden an A necessarily, but uh, President Trump gets a, uh, a grade well below that in most people's estimation, it seems. At least that's what the reviews have been saying. And I uh, I, I, I thought that, that his behavior really put the whole idea of president of these candidate debates in danger, frankly. Uh, I think if they, if they were assumed to be likely going this way in the future, their future would be dim. And uh, maybe... People are ready to get done having presidential debates. Maybe the people decide they've outlived their usefulness or something. But certainly, if this is the approach going into the future, uh, they may uh, they may not last because um, the uh, what happened on Tuesday evening was uh, such a debacle, frankly, that it was a um, 
and, and it was a, it was chaos essentially introduced into the scene by Donald Trump. I don't think we can assign, uh, assign blame equally here. Um, Joe Biden, again, didn't, uh, didn't respond perfectly in all instances. There were a couple of times when he was attempting to interrupt or to continue speaking when, when Trump, uh, had interrupted him. So there was a little bit of give and take here on that, but I, I must say that the overall weight of, of the disruption and the disturbance and the misbehavior, frankly, just the childish misbehavior, I mean, the kind of stuff you get sent to your room for, uh, <laughs> was, the vast majority of that was on, on the guy with the big mop of uh, orangish blonde hair there. So anyway, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Tell me, call me up. Tell me I'm wrong. That's one of the things you can do here on the Dave Graham show on WDEV FM and AM 2441777 is the local number in Waterbury. The toll free number 1877-291-8255. Um, and, uh, the, um, other thing that's been on my mind in the last few days, or one of the one of the things that's been on my mind, is the uh, NBA playoffs. I think uh, regular listeners to the show uh, know that I'm a bit of a Boston Celtics fan, <laughs> and uh, yeah, as you would guess, a little bit a bit disappointed by the uh, by the Celtics exit from the NBA playoffs. They lost in six games to the Miami Heat, and uh, of course the Heat now go on to play the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA Finals. Curious to know what people think. Uh, do they, does this young, scrappy Heat team have a chance against uh, the Lakers, who have, of course, LeBron James, uh, the monster player of the whole league. Uh, also, Anthony Davis, another really uh, top player. The two of them are uh, are clearly the best players on the Lakers, and Lakers have several other uh, several other excellent players, including uh, a former Boston Celtic, Rajon Rondo, point guard. Um, the uh, NBA playoffs, weirdly enough, will be, I guess, uh, ending, wrapping up in October when we're usually looking forward to the start of a new season. Uh, just another another thing turned topsy-turvy by the coronavirus pandemic. They've been playing all these games, the final uh, sort of games of the regular season or the irregular season, I might call it, uh, in the uh, in the bubble, they have a special complex down in Orlando, Florida, where the all of the basketball games have been have been played. The uh, object of the effort there is to minimize people coming in and out of the so-called bubble, and therefore minimize the transmission of the coronavirus because they want they don't want anybody uh, actively playing basketball to start spreading uh, coronavirus among teammates and so on. And they've they've been. That, that effort to keep the coronavirus at bay has been amazingly successful in that circumstance there, uh, in, in the, in the so-called bubble in Florida where the NBA has been trying to wrap up its, uh, 2019-20 season. They're finally getting around to the finals. They normally happen in, you know, the playoffs normally happen in May and then often into June. Um, and here we are in September and into October before we, we're going to have a, an NBA champion for the year 2020. So, what do you think, folks? Uh, two questions for you, really. Uh, what are your uh, any basketball fans out there want to make a prediction about the uh, about the Lakers Heat series, or um, would uh, anybody out there um, like to tell us what the Celtics need to do to to improve their chances next year of uh, making making the league finals, not just the conference finals? That's uh, so. Two questions for any uh, New England basketball fans out there who want to weigh in. On, uh, on all of that, um, the uh, 
the state of Vermont, of course, uh, per- percolates along with its own political issues and election issues and so forth. Uh, quite a dust-up uh, in the Democratic uh, side of the ticket in the last couple of days, um, where uh, W, uh, where rather a Vermont Digger has been uh, among those reporting that that. Uh, the spouse of uh, David Zuckerman, the Democratic nominee for governor, posted some stuff online uh, the other evening, quite critical of the uh, Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor, that being Molly Gray, and uh, uh, and and Digger has taken a certain amount of heat for even writing the story about these comments by uh, Rachel Nevitt, the wife of David Zuckerman, who uh, called uh, Molly Gray. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but I remember one of the one of the words was manipulative. Uh, I guess Ms. Nevitt doesn't really like Ms. Gray all that much, and um, uh, and re- reflected that quite uh, quite strongly in some comments that were put up online and, and then taken down sometime not long not long after that, but but uh, long enough so that uh, folks were able to grab them and uh, make uh, <laughs> make a news story out of the uh, out of these uh, these comments. By uh, the wife of uh, gubernatorial nominee David Zuckerman, and uh, certainly um, the uh, his campaign probably didn't need that. Uh, they're already he's already, uh, according to polling, uh, seriously uh, trailing uh, Governor Phil Scott. And uh, Molly Gray is in a tight race against uh, Republican Scott Milne for lieutenant governor, and she probably doesn't need this either. So there we go. Anyway. Alrighty, is that a story of Democrats shooting themselves in the foot, or what do we think? Um, one of the many, many areas in Vermont, uh, sectors of our economy, however you want to describe it, that have really uh, had a bumpy ride in recent months with this uh, coronavirus pandemic has been in the performing arts. In fact, uh, tomorrow we're going to have uh, Carol Dunn from Northern Stage, a, a terrific theater company based in White River Junction, talking to us about how they're trying to get things up and running again in the, in the, as we try to emerge from this coronavirus crisis. And uh, that'll be an interesting conversation in the second hour of tomorrow morning's uh, pr- program. Uh, we've had musicians and uh, other uh, performers on over uh, the last uh, few weeks and months talking about uh, their their struggles just to keep uh, keep the bills paid and the uh, roof over their heads and and uh, the life going on because it's uh, it really has not been easy when all of our venues for performance have essentially been shut down for months now uh, six months or so and uh, it's it's times are tough and uh, but uh, we want to bring in uh, this morning one of our uh, favorite performers here Vermont based performers he's an actor he's a comedian he's a writer he's a storyteller and he's an all around good guy Rusty Deweese joins us on the phone good morning Rusty hey Dave uh, thanks for having me on beautiful out here in Vermont Oh yeah, we have had a, a stellar, but it seems like fast-moving uh, foliage season. I'll tell you, I, I saw somebody online post uh, four pictures of the same tree. As uh, actually a, a good friend, Kate Chant at VT Digger, she's a, a chief copy editor there, and, and uh, she posted these four pictures uh, of the same tree, and it was like Wednesday, Saturday, Monday, and and uh, Wednesday again, or something like that. And you know, on on in the first picture, the tree is just starting to turn. It's still mostly green. In the second picture, it's absolutely glorious, bright color. In the third picture, it's uh, starting to really lose its leaves. And in the fourth picture, it's pretty much stick season. <laughs> and that's in a week. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> what the heck is yeah, up with that? I, well, I always say don't fret 
one of the first things I wrote in my first shows like 25 years ago was about when people used to say, boy, the leaves are turning early this year. And, and the joke was, I said, hey, when they're turning, they're turning. It ain't early or late. When they're turning, it's just the right time. They know. So don't worry about it. <laughs> so anyway, we're, yeah. we're, we just let them roll. And uh, I don't think they want to rush it because the, the leaves know that when they turn, they're die, they're dead. They fall on the ground and rot. So they don't want to rush that anyway. Yeah, well, I think you make a good point there. And, and actually, I'm, I'm not, I was hearing a lot of it and seeing, you know, I mean, these days everything gets spotted online, Twitter and Facebook, et cetera. And, and a lot of people were commenting, oh, isn't it early this year? Isn't it early? And, and, you know, today is October 1st. And, and uh, I remember lots of years in the past when it was the last week of September, first week of October. Uh, and that was pretty much peak foliage season here in, uh, at least in north central Vermont where, where we're located. Uh, and, um, so I, I, strikes me as they're pretty much on time. I mean, maybe by a matter of a couple of couple days, yeah. but but you're right, Rusty. I mean, they, you know, we, it, it's sort of like if if it feels like they're early, maybe we're late or something. I don't know, but well, you know, they know it's it's just like you know, I get regular and I visit the John every morning for a while uh, at the same time, and then all of a sudden it'll be four in the afternoon. So you know, my system knows. You know, I'm not worried about it, but I, I get the That's point. Right. In fact, right now, not to not to keep going on this whole foliage thing, we could make the whole segment about foliage. That'd be fine yep. with me, but I'm sitting here, and I'm looking at two huge popples, and uh, they're green, you know. So it's it's subjective, and it's also elevation, you know, uh, pointed, and uh, so who knows? But I tell you what, doesn't matter. It's just it's just so so nice to be in Vermont. Not only not only period, but especially through all this stuff that everyone's going through in the in the world. So nice to be in Vermont, and uh, certainly the Flatlanders know that because they're just peppering right into our state here and one of the things that's yeah. doing well i think i hear i'm not an expert i want to make that clear to everyone listening i'm not an expert in anything but one of the things that's picking up around is, is real estate and you know people just get it man this is a good place to live yeah it's a good place to live and especially uh you know that's uh there's an extra accent mark on that or something during this era of the coronavirus because if you look at our numbers, uh, you know, Vermont has, has done incredibly well and, and I think Governor Scott, uh, deserves a lot of the credit, but he also shares a lot of the credit and constantly points out that he thinks that Vermonters really get the credit here because people have been careful. You know, uh, you, go, you go out these days and pretty much everybody's got a mask on and they're maintaining their social distance and, and, uh, people are really trying to, uh, work on keeping everybody healthy. Uh, it's a community effort, and that is um, uh, that is the style these days, and uh, and it seems to be effective. Um, you know, I I read and see on TV and hear on the radio and so on that uh, many other parts of the country uh, are taking a different approach. They there are larger numbers of people who are very skeptical about, say, the need to wear a mask and that kind of thing. And you know, at the end of the day, when they measure the instances of the coronavirus, uh, boy, a big difference. In fact, I did a little arithmetic here on the show. I had Tracy Dolan, Deputy Health Commissioner, on a week or, two, week or 10 days ago, and um, I was asking her about the Vermont's uh, per capita death rate from the coronavirus. Uh, if the United States had the same per capita death rate as Vermont, uh, we'd have had, as of that date, uh, again, eight or 10 days ago, uh, we'd have had about 30,000 30, deaths na- nationwide from the coronavirus. 
instead of the yeah. more than 200 more than 200,000 deaths that we have had. And so I think that really tells some kind of a story. What do you what do you think what do you get from that, Rusty? Well, uh, well if anybody wants my opinion, I mean, I think that Phil Scott and his team and by the way, Phil Scott's the most the winningest driver ever at Thunder Road. That's just not features. <laughs> that's that's heats and everything. So he 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 doesn't get that without knowing that he's part of a team. And he, you very, you very much get the sense of Phil, whether it's race car driving, that he, you know, he wasn't really turning the lug, lug the nuts on his wheels throughout yeah. the racing career. So he, he knows that. But, uh, but yeah, so they put it out there, him and his team, and I think they're just trying to get guide, which is nice, trying to guide, not to uh, preach, and uh, they try to get as much us to do as much as we can, and they get close to we get close to being perfect. Now, I will say, uh, speaking for me and a lot of people that I see and think, everyone has their own rules. You know, if a certain, if a few people come over to my house or something and I haven't seen them for a while and maybe they're not the kin of mine, you kind of look at them and you have your mask in your hand and then you feel what they're feeling. And so I think that we're going around and we're making our own rules. Even with that, we're going, the guidelines are first and foremost in our minds, and then uh, we, we, we're doing our best. So, yeah, the one yeah. thing I don't hear much about ever is um, is uh, you know if you're unhealthy and older, you're more susceptible to the COVID. Will you know go with the comorbidities, and you might and you might get really really sick or pass away. But then take the age away, and then there's just if you're healthy. So if you're young and healthy. And you don't hear much preaching about let's be healthy. You know, let's, what else can we do? Let's wash our hands. Nobody says, let's eat greens. Nobody says, yeah. let's not do this. Let's not eat that. Let's eat this. Let's, you know, not just to look at the leaves, but let's get out there and walk around more for our health. The healthier we are as a people, the quicker this thing will go away. And I want to see some actual specifics of these scientists or these smart folks that are guiding us say, hey, let's start to eat a little better. Let's start to take care. Let's start to think about that sleep even more. I think, I think I've think i heard Levine say that stuff a little bit, but uh, I'm, I'm all into that. So, uh, yeah, I think Vermont's doing a great job. Would you like to see uh, Dr. Levine and, and others, uh, public health officials, uh, talk more about just the need to uh, get out there and get exercise? And because uh, some of the indicators, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm seeing, for instance, uh, people regard, say, drinking as a not particularly healthy behavior, and yet alcohol sales are way up in Vermont and elsewhere uh, since the advent of the pandemic. It might have been. It might be a good idea, Dave, to say, "Yeah, you, you folks, you're, you're going to be home a lot more. You have been home a lot more the last six months. And you know, what, what are the foods that are scarce on the shelves? Well, maybe not the most healthy foods. Which is to your, which is to your point. You know, I'm all for uh, folks to have the drink or two, or you know, and the alcohol gets a bad rap because of the way people decide to use it." And it is a disease, the real bad alcohol. I understand that's another that's another topic. But yeah, the drink is fine. But the, the exercise and the eating right, um, and then and then the other thing that's impossible to do is not grow old. You know, <laughs> so yeah, right, grow yeah. old, and then you'll be you'll no more aging people. But, but if you yep. you know, I have some friends who are who uh, uh, one gentleman. He's not from here necessarily, but 
he, he's uh, not he's not my age. I'm turning sixty in November, and he's worried. And I listen. I could catch something tomorrow and 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 and, and uh, go down six feet under right off. But um, he's worried about getting it this COVID thing more than I would be because he looks at his numbers and his health printout. So mm-hmm. if, so let's get that let's get that in gear as a whole. But that actually could be one of the answers to Vermont's overall great numbers because I think I don't know, but I think if you dig down into statistics state to state, Vermont probably shows quite healthy over many, many other states. So that could be another ingredient in there. But I, I would go out there and, uh, hey, Phil, Dr. Levine, I, I'm, I, I'm out of a job, so you could hire me to go on your next press conference and talk about, you know, sh- shopping in the outside aisles of the supermarket, not so much the inside one. <laughs> oh, more time in the produce aisle and less time in the cookie aisles, is that what you're saying, Rusty? Uh, you you got to look at you, you. You want to shade it to the outside aisles, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and actually, and never really. Yeah. And actually, you know, I the Jesus Crow, as you know, and it's a shame to get to this time of the year because our little uh, homegrown mom and pa farmers markets are closing up. Uh, obviously, they're going to get the root vegetables out there. Uh, they already are, but that, that's the you know we can just eat so healthfully around here easily. I do understand that it is more uh, expensive to eat the the things that are just right from the ground onto the girl's truck three miles down the road, puts it on a piece of plywood that has four two-by-fours under it holding it up. It's yep. more expensive to eat that way. But um, I think you can, you know, uh, drop a, you know, you know uh, drop a couple of those TV services that you have, and, and you'll get 60 or 70 bucks extra a month, and you can buy beans with it. Buy beans instead of uh, instead of what uh, I don't know, Fubo or Netflix or whatever, right? So exactly. Um, and by the way, another thing you're doing when you're watching Netflix and all that, what are you doing? Sitting down. You're generally you're sitting down unless it's some kind of an exercise show. You know, my uh, my <laughs> wife has a has a couple of couple of CDs or DVDs or whatever they are, and you, you she pops the disc in the machine and then starts jumping around in front of the TV and come on, honey, you got to try this. <laughs> And and do you you join in, or I don't want to know any personal. uh, I'm usually Rusty. I got to confess, I'm usually pretty bad. What what about you during this coronavirus? You're giving this this big sermon about you got to practice what you preach. Have you have you improved your diet during this six month period, or have you gotten more exercise, or what are you doing? Well, I think the first question would be: Was there any room to improve my diet? Uh, um, I don't know. I, I I've I'm fortunate. In many, many ways, uh, fortunate yeah. with the parents that I was born to and fortunate that they moved to Vermont when I was seven years old. But I've been fortunate with good health. And also, I, I, I jumped on the wagon a while ago. Uh, to, it's all about what works for you. And I don't really want to sound like I'm preaching. I'm just, okay. Right. I, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying that is an ingredient of this whole thing that I yeah. scarcely hear about. That's all. You know. Yeah, no, I, 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 I eat pretty good. I like my sweets. I like my sweets. Uh, yeah, but I, I think I eat overall really, really well. But, but the, the advantage I have is you, you offer me a, a beet, and I'll take it because to me a beet tastes as good as a, uh, to, uh, tastes as good as a chocolate bar. Wow. So there, there we go. Rusty Deweese, the man who doesn't miss a beat. Um, <laughs> say, no, uh, good one, good one. 
So, hey, Rusty, what does the what does the logger think about wearing masks? Can you give us any any uh, any analysis there from the logger's perspective? Well, I tell you what, this mask wearing, I understand that Galbang governor there used to race tires. Now he's gone to the awful side of it all, but he's got us wearing masks. And I tell you what, um, I look better with one than without one, so I'm happy for it. Huh? And how do you feel walking into a bank with a mask on? I asked them girls, I was in there the other day at a local bank, I said to the girls, used to be, if I come in here looking like this, you'd be dinging the bell for help, but now it's just duragur, you know what I mean? And you wouldn't <laughs> think a logger, love the logger knew what duragur meant, but anyway, so, no, the mask... you got more time with the pandemic, you can look up these fr- fancy French words, it's good. <laughs> I, I, that's French? I thought it was Italian. Hey, uh, listen... Oh, uh, maybe, I don't I know. know. <laughs> the six-foot thing... Well, Cripes Almighty, I'm gaining six feet. I used to try to stay 12 feet away from most people anyway. Yeah, you're getting close to, closer to people. That's, that's nice to hear. Hey, Rusty, we've got to take our little bottom-of-the-hour break for CBS News Minute, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our conversation with Rusty Deweese on the other side. Folks, stay with us. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Picture Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. Rusty Deweese is my guest, and the uh, Vermont-based actor, writer, storyteller, comedian, uh, and uh, alter ego, I guess, of the logger, uh, is going to be uh, talking to us about the uh, life under the coronavirus pandemic here. Uh, Rusty, um, I wonder, um, your... uh, so it sounds like you have a lot of concern, not just for your own situation as a performing artist, but uh, for the performing arts overall here in Vermont. Uh, how are people getting by? Uh, good, good. Yes, I do. Uh, I yeah, I would be a fool to say, hey, it's good for me to be on the radio anytime, Dave. And I, I thank you for picking up my my phone today to have me on to talk about myself. But there's the segment that are the Flint theaters and the Barry Opera House and the Spruce Peak Arts and, and the smaller ones like Monica Callen and Peter in Waterbury Center, those arts organizations, those are organizations and they're having their difficult times uh, dot 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 however what I always think of are the Dave Kellers and the uh, Taryn Noels and the uh, Paul Asbells and Patrick Ross, the fiddle player I have who who are independent little people, little people, independent entertainers, who sometimes get hired by Spruce Peak Arts, sometimes get hired by the Flynn and the Paramount and Rutland, but those groups often hire groups who come from out of state. So the yeah. Patrick Rosses and the Abby Sherman, a young lady up in Morrisville, and all the people that you see playing at the farmers markets and things, those folks. Many of them aren't full-time entertainers, but many of them are part-time. And I think maybe let's just say they got. If you see somebody at a, at a in the corner of a of a bar or at a farmer's market, maybe they're getting forty dollars to eighty dollars, 
And if they're doing six of those a month, let's let's make it easy. Let's say they get a hundred dollars, six hundred dollars a month. They have another job if maybe they have a spouse either way. And but six hundred dollars a month times twelve, so that is gone. That is yeah. gone. And mm-hmm. th- and Dave, here's the here's the th- way I look at it. that. This is my opinion. The last four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years in Vermont, as you know and the listeners know, we were just booming. Man, I mean, I think Dave, Dave Graham probably had a festival on his lawn. You know, everybody was having a festival. <laughs> the, alchemist, the alchemist was kicking. If you made cheese, you were kicking. If you, had a, if you had a lawn sale, you would hire a musician. These people were just you know, washing their hands in $20 bills, man, and good for them because to get yourself into the position as a musician or a singer or a comedian or, or, uh, what, or actually a, a, a ditch digger, any job, but to get yourself mm-hmm. in a position with any talent to be hired, that's something else. But then to have this whole boom that was, you know, farmer's markets, there was three in every town, and each of those farmer's markets was doing well enough to hire the guy, to hire the girl and sing. The tap rooms, the the ski resorts. So so I'm I'm thinking about those, you know. And then it was and it's just done. So I'm thinking about those folks more than maybe the larger organizations. I heard that the Flynn did. I read that the Flynn is good through 2021 because they have such an endowment. You know what I mean? And that's not to say I love the Flynn, but uh, so yeah. that, that anyway, I'm thinking about those people. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. And 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 one thing that has impressed me a lot about Vermont over the years is um uh it you know it's a great venue for for musicians to kind of get their stuff out there and and uh and there are all these different avenues and for some reason it just seems a whole lot more kind of accessible than you uh in the major metropolitan areas i mean people think about going to the big city if you want to make a big break as a as a music, musician or an actor or really anything but uh i mean one thing that's beautiful about the scene here is that it does seem bo- accessible both from the point of view of the performer and the ability to kind of find find gigs and and the the audience uh you know our tickets tend to be really affordable here compared to places like boston and new york Certainly, uh, and and the uh, uh, and and just the whole scene um, it seems to be kind of much more uh, open to uh, entry by uh, by listeners and, and fans and 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 the performers themselves. I, I I don't know if that makes sense to you, Rusty. I mean, I'm just wondering. Actually, as as a performer, has that been your experience? And and, and as a performer who's gone elsewhere too. You get you you get into more uh, broader conversation here, but yeah, I mean, it's the whole <laughs> farm to table. So it's not farm to table; it's you know a parlor in your house to stage. And mm-hmm. yes, Vermont is very um, open to and very thrilled to watch the, the the gal who's who's brought her recorder to the flea market. And who uh, is still learning? And I think Vermont, yeah, they're not paying; they're just going by and thinking, "Isn't that just great that that person can play, can play that?" And so, uh, there's a genteelness about the the area we live. I just, I'm a guy that, if you want to get bigger, I'm a guy that don't, doesn't think that we're divided. I, I, I've been doing some gazebo shows, and I look out onto the lawn and the audience, and I said this to them up in Danville. I said, "We're not divided." 
you know, the medium is the message, and we're hearing these messages through certain mediums that we just take for the word. Well, my yeah. word that yeah. day, the, the, these days, to those folks that are at my Green uh, Gazebo concert is, I bet in the audience right now are libertarians, are Democrats, are, uh, you know, not apolitical, are uh, Republicans, uh, people who believe that a, a, a child was born to a virgin woman, people who believe in Scientology, and we're all sitting here, and a fan just baked cookies for every one of us. We're not as divided. <laughs> uh, we're not, that actually happened. We're not as divided as, as we think, and that's a kind of a didn't really specifically answer your question. But, yeah, so your question was, we have a lot of people going around playing music and singing and being funny in Vermont, and it's easy to access. And those people who are, many of them are at least 50% independent. That means they have to find their gig. Many of those people are not getting that money. So I would say... Christmas time, the holidays are coming, and if men, most people didn't lose their jobs, Dave. Most yeah, people didn't. Yeah, yeah. Very few did. And the very few who did, who are listening, are going to say right now, oh, that's wrong, Russ. Well, again, the media is the message. What you're hearing now from me is most people didn't lose their jobs. But I'll say that if you didn't, and you have a company in a business, the six-foot thing is great. Bill, keep the six foot thing. I understand. I'm not poo pooing the six foot thing, but that's what's got these. That's what's busted this thing for the for the entertainers. You know, you can now sit in a restaurant, you know, right next to the three other family members that you brought, and you're two feet away from some other family, and you don't yeah. have your mask on. I understand that, but the theaters, and this is great too. They opened it up to I was it 75 percent. So if the theater holds a hundred, the little theaters that I rent. I rent, I, I, I should produce myself 200, 75, you know, 50% is 100, and uh, it's not working. So the six foot thing. So if you have a company, uh, hire these little entertainers. Uh, you know, I don't mean little, I mean you know, on scale, you know. They're, they're not yeah. that expensive. To sit in front and in the corner of the office at you know, Christmas week every day at noon and go outside the box and, and think about these, um, uh, you know, independent little uh, entertainers going around. And give them give them a couple of bucks extra. It's it's gonna. And you know, Dave, when you're when you're this entertainer, it's like Michaela Schifrin. You know, she's the steer. She she mm -hmm. dad died. You lose that competitive edge. I rehearse myself all the time. I'm able to produce myself. That makes me unique. I'm sort of in charge of saying to myself, Hey, Russ, go to the select boards in these towns and see if they'll rent you their green. A lot of these yeah. other people have to wait till Jen and John Kimmick can allow people in there. That's the alchemist people, and then hire right. somebody in. They have to wait for that. I don't have to wait for that. So, um, but 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 you lose as a performer. You're paying money to see this performer sharp, and when these performers have a year off from not playing in their parlor alone, but from going mm -hmm. out there in front of an audience, even if that audience is four people in a real estate office. They're losing that, so that's a little bit of a nervous thing for these folks, I think. Uh, one other thing that has impressed me as a, as a consumer of arts in Vermont is just um, 
the, the the quality seems really really high. I mean, I, I think I think a lot of people would expect. I mean, especially maybe people traveling up here from away, that if you come if you come to a, a performance of any kind in a small town, you know, you're gonna you're gonna get uh, less uh, high quality stuff. And 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 there's you know there's some that that happens in some instances. Let's let's all be honest. But I mean, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't think anybody thinks that the local community orchestra here is the Boston Symphony. You know, but I but I I think at the same time there are many many instances in Vermont where the performances are just really top notch. I mean, I, I think of a, a banjo player from over in the St. Johnsbury named Bob Amos. I don't know if you know Bob, but man, that guy has some serious chops. And I mean. I've, I've, I haven't heard much banjo playing out of Nashville that's any better, you know, and, uh, right. um, so, and, and there are just countless instances of that. Karen Kever has the Capital City concerts in Montpelier if you're more classical music, you know, bent toward classical music. And, uh, and, and she's done just an amazing job of, of bringing in really, really top flight musicians. Uh, a few years ago, she had the, this outfit called the Borromeo String Quartet, which is, you know, if you read the New York Times music column, they're among the, they get you know some of the best reviews of any string quartet in the world, uh, and here they are playing the little Unitarian Church in Montpelier for like you know, I don't know what it was twenty five bucks a ticket or something, and uh, and you you just kind of have to slap your forehead and go really I can walk to that yeah. from my house <laughs> you know <Right. laughs> wow and, and, and often it's often free I cannot agree with you more. Dave, on the quality of the entertainment goes right into your community theater. It's a two prong. There's my friend George Seymour, who's been a Vermonter for years and years and years, and he's an unbelievable. Uh, he lives in Waterbury, actually, banjo player, and he taught himself. He worked for Green Mountain Power, recently retired, and years ago, thirty years ago, when we were all busting, busting in as, as kids, or forty years ago, actually, forty-five years ago, um, he would be driving his work van with the left side, the driver's side window down, with the banjo in his lap, doing his right hand moves, and the neck of the banjo is out the window. So there's, <laughs> there are the George Seymours, there are the George Seymours that get it through grit and blood. And then, here's, here's what you may be seeing with, with what you just spoke about. You're seeing that, as we know, including me, in 1968 when I was seven, Many, uh, so many people have moved into our area, and a lot of these musicians and people that you're seeing that have that quality so, so high have, have, uh, pedigree. I mean, they, yeah. if you look back into where they've been, they studied here, they studied there, they played here, they played there. Now, my fiddle, the guy that plays fiddle with me, Patrick Ross, is, is in the stratosphere, and he grew up in Canaan, and his father taught him until he was 12, and then his father passed away. His father had that fiddle stuff in his, in his family. But then if you talk to Patrick, he spent time in Nashville. His mother sent him away to the Mark O'Connor Fiddle School for years. So there's mm-hmm. much more. It's not, it's not like when we were kids 40 years ago when it was the kitchen tonk where we self-taught. Now you look at a lot of these people. They've been around. They're the real thing. And it goes right down to community theater. Where you see community theater now, man, and it's like really, really good. It's a notch, maybe less than some Broadway stuff, but you're seeing a lot of the folks who spent time in New York up here now getting the lead roles in community theater. That's a double-edged sword because the local postmistress can't get the lead role anymore because she's up against some woman 
you know, who was a contract player on as the world turns. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think I think you're that's an astute um, observation and ex- explanation there. That, that the quality of, of musicianship around here is crazy good, and actors in, in you know theater. Yeah. Rusty, I'm wondering, uh, uh, have you been able to uh, maybe do any stuff online that has helped you uh, kind of keep your audience uh, interested and so on, uh, or uh, is that not really your thing? No, that's a good question, Dave. <clears throat> uh, two answers there, excuse me. Uh, when it first, when this thing first hit, I noticed entertainers were putting themselves online, and good for them, and I would watch it, and I said to myself, that that musician sounds pretty good and looks okay in their little basement and they were coming on to comfort people who are at home more i got that but i said to myself you know if i go online and do my little guitar or tell some jokes that's not the way i want to present myself to someone i think the product i'm presenting you online early on in this pandemic was not a product that i want i want you to see because it's it's not it's not constructed the way I'd like to construct it to you, even though you're not paying for it if you're watching me on Facebook. So the other answer is, yeah, I have an Instagram presence where I'll do little short bits of me learning the guitar, and they sound pretty nice. And I do Facebook Lives when I promote my shows, which I have done for three gazebo shows, and I have one this Saturday in Mil- Sunday in Milton at 2 o'clock at the Bombardier Theater there. So I, I just – and then I hired a good shooter of mine, video guy and we put together a five minute piece in my barn so what i said dave bottom line is i'm not going to do the small bits on facebook where the sound isn't good and where i'm not that good anyway and uh, the light isn't good and my hair's askew not that my hair askew is is a better thing actually but um (laughs) i'm gonna wait i'm gonna wait and put out something really nice and i did that to stay which was your point to stay relevant to stay in front of folks to say I don't need to stay in front of them too much because I've been doing this for 25 years. I, you know, if I go out of their mind totally at this point, I don't deserve it anyway after 25 years. But So that's what I did, and uh, now I'm trying this new model for me, which is I said this is going to be around in the spring, and not a lot of things going on up to this point. So I have to uh, – comedy outside isn't as easy, perhaps not as effective as music. If you're listening to music outside, you can grab for the Pepsi, put your head down, say to your friend, hey, do you want a Pepsi? And you you, you don't miss any notes. But if you put your right. head down when you're watching comedy, or if the truck goes by and beeps the horn like they did all day last Sunday up in Danville to me, that was funny. And I was able to use them. <laughs> uh, you miss bits of the comedy. But I said, i got to do it. So I, I said, I'm going to try four gazebo shows as a new model. And boy, they've worked so well. The people came out. I had some questions specific ones if they would work and and all those questions have been answered to the positive so I'm going out next year Dave and I'm going to produce all one I'm going to do 40 or 50 gazebo shows and here's the hook I'm buying a tractor like a tractor trailer I'm buying the 10 wheeler Mac which is what I started out doing when I was a kid I started driving for Dale Percy excavating Chip Percy one of my mentors runs it I went to see him and he's he's trading in one of his 2003 Mac tractors I'm going to buy it, I'm going to decal it up, and I'm going to make a bed and put the flatbed on the back. And I'm not going to be dragging it. It'll be right behind the cab and go two feet past the dualies. And I'm going to go to every stinking town that will have me, and I'm going to drive up in that truck, and I'm going to get on that flatbed and do my show. So it's the Rusty Mack Truck Vermont Show Tour 
And uh, so that's the model that I figured out for myself, like everybody who's walking the earth right now is figuring out all aspects of their life for themselves. So I'm really excited about what I'm doing next spring and summer. Wow, that is, that sounds like a heck of a plan. Now we'll have to look forward to uh, you coming to uh, our town and our, all the towns in our area over the, over those uh, those months next year. I think. Uh, Thanks. That, and you, and you got to be uh, you know you, you know you get just you have to have your own sort of personal resilience to come up with a plan like that. And hats off to you for for your uh, just uh, you know this. Everybody's in kind of in the process of bouncing back or bouncing right. forward or. Bouncing sideways wherever you need to bounce. That is kind of right. the deal right now because what a what a weird a weird world. Rusty, I, 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 we only have a, a few minutes uh, to go. I, I, I could not let you go without asking you about a couple of uh, key uh, Vermont issues here. One is what does the logger think about um, this idea of uh, having retail shops in Vermont selling cannabis? Oh, I'm all, uh, the law. Lo- oh, me? Well, <laughs> cannabis. Now, uh-huh. I say, I say, you know, I, my, my family goes back 35 generations in Vermont. And uh-huh. they say if you're, you're seven generation Vermont, you're true. So I'm 35 generations back. In fact, my father, my grandfather has Calvin Coolidge's axe and we've had to, we've had to uh, replace the handle and the head, but we have his hat. And anyway, I say, <laughs> you do what you do. And I ain't worried about it. That's what I say about cannabis. I don't care what you're sticking into yourself. If it goes in, well, you know what I'm saying, and that sounds weird, but you go right ahead and sell your dope or your cannabis, or your rub that ointment right on the thing that needs to be rubbed and have a good dull darn time doing it. It's what I'm concerned about. I just want you to be free and have have a good time. Any Any other questions? <laughs> well, I'm wondering, what do you think the state ought to do about its uh, it, 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 it's it's terrible pothole problem in the spring. You're talking about looking forward to spring. What do you, what do you, what does Vermont need to do about the horrible potholes? Well, we there's have? A, yeah, there's a whole sort of a policy argument or discussion you could have there on the potholes. But I say this: I don't know nothing about policy. I say in the spring, if there's a lot of potholes. Grab your goldman rod and reel, bake that hook, and stick it right in the deepest one, and see what you catch out of it. I, that's all I say. I mean, you know, use it to your advantage. Potholes yeah, are good. nothing but small. Small potholes are nothing but small swimming holes. You know what I mean? You can get, get them big enough, then yeah. dive right in. And and I'll say, I've been up and down Route 100 between Waterbury and Stowe probably into the fifty thousand times, and you know, about forty nine thousand of them times. I missed every pothole, so I ain't worried about that either. I don't worry about nothing. Wow! So, so you, you you you're not one of these people who like figured that over the over the course of driving that road back and forth fifty thousand times, you lost an entire car. I look at the positive day. I look yeah. at the amount of times I was able. To, I look at the amount of times I was able to miss them. Here's another key. Here's another key. You got these son of a gun and y'all darn sandal wearing Prius driving. Bumper sticker putting on Flatlanders moving up here, yep. and they're complaining. That they're they're the ones complaining about the potholes. And I say to them, "This, you're complaining about the potholes. Buy a car that's got more clearance than three inches, like your gold darn Prius. Get rid of them things. I don't care if they are good for the environment. If they're jiggling you so that you're worried, 
Get a goddamn Dodge Dooley diesel. Smart enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, where'd you go? You probably went to Smith College anyway, half of them. And, 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 and I say, I say just relax. Take your time. If you weren't in a hurry to get up to your house to put on the Fox News or the CNN, well, you'd be able to miss more of them potholes. Look at the positives, I say to people. Yep, and uh, that, that's why, I mean, a lot of drivers in Vermont, they look like they're drunk because they're weaving down the road, but they're actually just trying to avoid potholes. So the, I, the, I always the, have to re- remind the police of that. Yeah, you, they're taking, they're flossing with one hand, they're texting mm-hmm. with the other, they're trying to uh, alleviate the potholes, <laughs> and they got, they're all worried because they went and spent as much money on their cash that I spent on my house. You see, if yeah, they got a car, if they bought a car that was like $4,500 off from the trade show on the radio on the weekend, they wouldn't be so stressed out about hammering the tie rod ends. You know what I mean? That's a good point, actually. Yeah, just, you know, tune into the, uh, tune into the, uh, the, the, uh, show here on WDEV, uh, and, and you can, you can definitely get a good deal on an old car, and then you can just drive it around and, and beat the heck out of it, and have the roads beat the heck out of it. You don't you, you don't have to worry about it. And that's exactly right. That's exactly. So, and how many people have made? How many people have actually made friends with the slow stop sign holding construction people? Uh, what they do is they cry the blues because they're in traffic. Me, I got all them slow stop sign construction people. I give them five bucks. I say that's the hardest job I've ever seen. You know what I mean? So you gotta turn your life into looking at the positives, Dave. That's all. Look at the positives. All right, that's what we're gonna do, Rusty. But okay. uh, the, we gotta get done. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're uh, you're a gentleman and a scholar, and let's talk again soon. Thanks. That's about it for the Dave Graham Show uh, on WDEV FM and AM. Here, folks, so stay tuned for Bill Sayer Common Sense Radio. We'll be back with our show another edition tomorrow morning, and uh, talk to you all then. Have a great afternoon, everybody.